Okay, we're going to jump right into our passage this morning. Our passage is Mark chapter 5. Would you stand with me for the reading of the Word of God? Mark chapter 5, verses 25 through 34. This is the Word of the Lord. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years. I'm sorry. I want to start in a different spot. We'll start in verse 24. And he went off with him, being Jairus. He's going to the home of a man named Jairus to heal this man's daughter, Jesus is. And so they're walking. He went with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but had rather grown worse after hearing about Jesus, came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, who touched me? He looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you from whom every good and perfect thing comes down from, you from whom every blessing flows, we thank you for taking, like with this woman, our sinfulness and subjecting your son, Jesus Christ, to death on the cross in our place. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that is with us, uniting us together in love as a congregation. We pray that he'd be given in great measure to all of us and that those who, like the woman in our passage, who don't know you at a certain time might come to the end of their own abilities and in desperation find the healing that they need through faith. And I pray that you'd bless them. I pray that not one person here would be kept from knowing your power and your love in a personal way that changes their life. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So if you're willing to think about the details and the implications of the story that we've just read together, it's a messy one. It's easy to skim over the surface of what's implied about this particular woman's condition. We don't want to think objectively about the implications of a 12-year hemorrhaging. But if we don't, if we don't think very literally and objectively, factually about the state of this woman, then we are also missing out on the glory and the power of Jesus' healing. If we don't come to grips with 
the, the desperate state, the messiness of her state, and realize the extent of it, then when it comes to how Jesus brings her out of that, we're going to miss out something, and we're going to miss out on something as well. We must grapple with this woman's condition because she represents all those who reach out to Jesus by faith. This is an actual story. It's not an allegory. It's a true factual account of something that happened. And, and yet, in her story lies all of our story. And so we have to reckon with it. Let's consider her condition. We are told very plainly in verse, uh, in verse 25 that she had had a hemorrhage for 12 years. She had had a discharge of blood from her body perpetually, night and day, for 12 years. This isn't just an inconvenience. This is a game changer. This constant bleeding framed in her entire existence. Think about that. It affected the activities that she could engage in. It affected her relationships, the people she interacted with on a, on a regular basis or maybe not so regular anymore. It even affected her relationship with God. In the Old Testament, there's a book called Leviticus that uh, conveys and it declares God's laws to the nation of Israel. And God had said this regarding a woman with her condition. This is what it says. Leviticus 15, verse 25. Now if a woman has a discharge of her blood many days, not at the period of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond that point, all the days after her impure discharge, she shall continue as though in her menstrual impurity. She is unclean. That's the verdict by God. She is unclean. Any bed on which she lies all those days of her discharge shall be to her like the bed at menstruation, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean, like her uncleanness at that time. Likewise, whoever touches them shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. When she becomes clean from her discharge, she shall count off for herself seven days, and afterwards she will be clean. So this is the process again. Okay, so after the bleeding stops, count seven days, and then wash, and she will be clean. On the eighth day, she shall take for herself two turtle doves or two young pigeons and bring them to the priest, to the doorway of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. So the priest shall make atonement on her behalf before the Lord because of her impure discharge." Thus you shall keep the sons of Israel separated from their uncleanness so that they will not die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle, which is among them. So you have the problem, right? The uncleanness, the bleeding. Then you have the, the process for coming out of that state. And then at the end of this passage in, in Leviticus, I know it's not a pretty thing to think about, but God tells us why. Why did he say this in the first place? It's so that when we come before his presence, we aren't put to death because of our uncleanness. I read these verses so that we better understand what the condition of this woman actually was and the implications of this condition. She was unclean. Everything she sat on, everything she touched, all who touched her shared in her defilement. So, in addition 
to the constant weakness that any one of us would have from a, a, a loss of blood, she's also made to feel like an outcast under the ban of the law. This no doubt created great loneliness in her heart. She was a woman who was made to want to hide herself. We think about lepers in the Bible. Leprosy, we talked about leprosy earlier this summer. They again were deemed unclean. And guess what? No one wanted to come near them because of the potential of them being defiled themselves. When lepers would go out, they would have to call out, unclean, unclean, to warn people so that they wouldn't accidentally incur uncleanness, okay? This woman doesn't have leprosy, but she has another problem in her body that renders her unclean. And therefore, we need to recognize the implications of this state, of this status. It would be a lonely life. It would be a life, if she were a plant, she would be one of the plants that wants to grow in the dark. Can't remember what they're called, but there's a type. She wouldn't want to grow in the light because of her uncleanness. She was unclean. Second, she was unclean and therefore there were certain prohibitions. She was not able to go to the temple. She was not able to worship with her other Israelites as they were able to worship. She was barred from coming into God's presence because he was holy and no uncleanness could come before his sight. That's what the Bible says. Third, her condition was tied, and I want to be clear here, her condition was tied to sinfulness. If you look at Leviticus, hear me out on this. If you look at Leviticus, in verse 29, it says that after she had gone seven days without bleeding, she was to take two turtle doves or two pigeons, and she with one of those was to what? Offer a sin offering. Given the fact that this condition was, would keep a woman from coming before God, or a man, by the way, there's a whole lot of things that also defile men, but I'm just, we're reading about a woman here, so this is what we're looking at. Given the fact that this condition kept her from coming before God, I take it that this wasn't, this wasn't the way that it worked from the beginning. Given the fact that they would have to offer up a sin offering for this condition. I believe that menstruation is part of the curse that was pronounced on Adam and Eve after they rebelled against God. It's clearly tied to the process of bearing children. And I believe that it's clearly part of the pain that God said would accompany woman after she ate of the fruit. So menstruation is not the result of any specific sin on this woman's part. I'm not saying she sinned and therefore God gave her this condition or or anything else. But what we actually need to recognize is it is rooted in the general sinfulness, in the general fallenness of the world. It is a result of the fall. The Bible speaks time and time again of life being in the blood. That's why you're not able to eat an animal if it's been boiled in its blood. You can't, you can't eat an animal with the blood because the life is in the blood. That's what God said. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, God chose to remind us of the sinfulness that, that we've incurred by allowing blood to flow on a regular basis, reminding us in a biological way that even while we live, life slips from us. And now, having 
thought on some things that are a little bit awkward, a little bit squirmish. We recognize, we begin, we just begin to recognize actually what this woman's condition was like. Her uncleanness is perpetual, 12 years. Her condition is trying personally. She suffers it in her body. She feels the effects on her body. She's weak. What happens when you lose blood and lose blood and lose blood? You die eventually. Slowly, her body is dying. To add to that, this, it's trying relationally. Every interaction with everyone is always being affected. You can't touch them or you're putting them out. Beyond the practical nuisance, beyond being a practical nuisance to those around her. We know from elsewhere in the Gospels that often the Jews were always suspicious of those that had bodily ailments. They were in the bad habit of always presuming that if you had a bodily ailment, it was what? It was divine punishment because you had done something wrong. And so you have many things here that are compounding to make this existence a very sorrowful one, don't you? This woman is very pitiable. This woman is very lonely. This woman is very sad. And this woman is nearly without any hope. After considering all these things, can we get a sense for what sort of suffering and shame she bore? And now we can better understand, at least a little bit, why we're told that she spent every penny, every cent that she had trying to find some remedy to this problem that was making her life the life of a dead woman even while she lived. 26 says she had endured much at the hands of many physicians She had spent all that she had, and she was not helped at all, but rather, she had grown worse. She's very aware of her sickness, very aware of the death that's working its way toward her, and so she's resolved to do everything in her power to find healing. She searches out doctors, and she's disciplined about the regimen, the treatment. She does everything that she is told to do, every prescription she takes, and yet, at the end of it all, disappointment compounding on disappointment. Things go from bad to worse. And some of you are like her. You've been given enough grace, enough mercy from God that you you see that you must find a remedy for yourself. Some sort of redemption for your sins that plague your life. Some healing for the diseases that cause you to be miserable. And yet you are seeking everything the world has to offer. You've visited every doctor. You've visited doctor therapy and you've tried all of his exercises, all of his advice. You've visited Dr. Dr. Pleasure and indulged in every single wanton desire that you think will give your life some ounce of joy, maybe some ounce of purpose. You've gone to doctor religion, and you've looked to religious forms, like the sacraments, like baptism, and thinking that those things alone, without faith, will do something for you to save you. 
But no doctor except the great physician, the Lord Jesus Christ, can ever heal a sickness that stems from the soul. Futility, like with this woman, futility is always the outcome of trying to fix yourself with human contrivances, with human methods, human ways. Every single thing in your life that you want to fix, every addiction, vice, broken friendship, every single thing that's wrong and messed up in this world stems from a spiritual problem. That's what the Bible teaches. Every negative, bad thing, every thorn even on a stem of a rose is here because of sin. And none of those things will be in heaven, but because of sin, they're here on earth. So we can't fix the problems that, and the sufferings that come through sin without addressing the spiritual nature of that problem. Human remedies to spiritual problems won't ever produce the sort of change we need. They leave us like this woman, worse off than before. On top of everything else, now our woman is broke. She couldn't go to any more doctors. She wanted to go to the Egyptian doctor, no more. The Syrian doctor, no more. She can't visit the Hebrew or the Roman doctor. She could no longer reach out to anyone in hope that perhaps one of them might offer up some new medicine to cure her. This might have been the, the most bitter thing for her. Not even being able to try and find any treatments any longer. What a sad condition this woman is in. And yet, even as I say that, maybe this is the best thing that ever happened to her. Maybe pulling out her purse and not finding a dime or a quarter or a nickel or even a cent is the very best thing that ever could have happened for this woman. And it's my prayer that actually those here that don't know the Lord, this is the condition you will find yourself in as well. Because the Bible teaches that when we come to an end of self, we come to the beginning of our knowledge of Christ. The last penny we have, the last shekel that this woman had, bound her to some sort of pretender who gave her some method for getting better somehow. But absolute bankruptcy sets us free to go to the Lord who heals our diseases without money and without cost. That's Jesus, what he says to you. Come to me, I will heal you without money and without cost. This is a great thing when a man is starved out of self-sufficiency, and we all like to be self-sufficient. I would admit that, first and foremost. I hate asking for help. But when we come to an end of ourselves and we are starved out of our self-sufficiency, now, now we may be ready to meet Jesus Christ. When all of your own virtues have passed away from you and gone out from you and you have nothing left, then you may find the virtue of Jesus Christ. Ashamed, weak, penniless, we read in verse 27, after hearing about Jesus. And when I read those words earlier this week, I thought there would have been no hope for this woman if she would not have heard about Jesus. Someone, or maybe many, had spoken to her, had talked with her about the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone had told her about this Jesus of Nazareth, this man who is claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God, sent from God, and he's going around and healing those that are, are sick and performing many miracles. 
And the scripture came to my mind, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And I felt condemned. This word confronts us all. Who has heard about Jesus Christ because of you? Who have you told about the power and the glory and the hope of Jesus? Praise God that somebody told this woman about Jesus. And in the desperate state that we've already discussed, verse 27 goes on and says, after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. And this is, this is the act that I want to focus on with most of the time we have left this morning. She comes up behind him after hearing about him and sticks out her hand and grabs the cloak of his garment. With the remainder of our time, I want to talk with you this morning about the audacity of faith. Audacity is integral to faith. Audacity is the willingness, for those of you that don't know, audacity is the willingness to take bold risks and sometimes even do things that you can be audacious in a bad way, but in the life of faith, it's about taking bold risks and sometimes even appearing imprudent, doing something that is foolish or not wise, doing something that you can't back up in and of your own self, you know, making some sort of statement or doing something that just out there. Can you exercise faith in God without being audacious? Can you exhibit faith without a willingness to take bold risks? Can you act in faith and not look foolish to those around you? No. You can't have faith without a willingness to do these things. You cannot have faith in Christ unless you are willing to be audacious. Faith is audacious. And we first see it in our passage when she comes up behind Jesus and grabs the hem of his garment, grabs the corner of his cloak. For she thought, if I touch his garment, I will be well. She thought, if I even just grab the hem of his garment, my affliction will be made well. You know that affliction she had spent every penny she had to try and heal? That 12-year, 24-7 constant cycle that took her life right down almost into the grave? That, if I just grab the hem of his garment, I will be made well. What she knew about Jesus mixed with the desperation of her condition, and the Holy Spirit used those two things to propel her to reach out in faith. But I want you to think about the implications of this action. What's at stake? What might be the consequence of this? How might this act be received by Christ? How might this appear to those who are all around pressing in on Jesus from different sides? Certainly, these are the thoughts that are racing through her mind as she steps out into the crowd to commit this act, but she does not yield. She is not swayed. She's audacious here. After years of living in the shadows of society, away from the public eye, away from the thoroughfare of the market, she enters the crowd 
pressed upon by all sides by those that are flocking to Jesus. Remember, we're told that there's a crowd with Jesus in the street. And according to the law of Israel, we already read it, she was causing all those she touched to unknowingly become clean, unclean. Be that as it may, she had to reach Jesus Christ. There might be incidental casualties along the way, but that was better than the alternative. That was better than hearing about Christ and wondering, but staying at home. That was better than hearing and maybe going and visiting one of the disciples and asking what his opinion was on the matter. There is no time for that when you have an opportunity to meet and be healed by, you have the opportunity to meet Christ and be healed by him. There is no time for any of those things. You know, I was, th- I was thinking just about, I was thinking about how to help us understand what's actually at stake here. And I, I know that none of us want to think at all about COVID anymore. But uh, the reality is, is that if you touch somebody who was unclean, you had to quarantine, right? You couldn't go out. You were, you were like frozen for a day. You were like, you couldn't do anything. That's what the Old Testament said. We just read it a little bit ago. And so imagine, you know, I've never met any president, but I had the chance to go see one of, one of, the, one of the presidents speak. Imagine, just for a minute, this is kind of like, you know, me having COVID and Andrew, who's a friend who worked for the Secret Service at the time, inviting me to go see one of the presidents or the candidates, I can't remember at the time, and me having COVID and going and, and having the opportunity to shake his hand and, and doing it, right? Like, I probably wouldn't do that. He would probably be pretty upset if he found out that I had done that. You can think of a situation that may be similar in your own mind. But this is, a, this is really audacious for her to do. She's unclean. She can't even go to the temple. And now she thinks she's going to go up to the Messiah and grab him? You need to, you need to get that reality in your mind. You need, to, you need to meditate on the implications of this act. This is a very bold, daring, risky act for her to take. In fact, it's possible that there was a real mix of sin and error even in her faith as she grabbed out for Jesus. She, it was not right to go out being unclean and touch all sorts of people and implicate them. There could have been real sin mixed in here with this faith. Certainly afterwards, she thinks that she's done something wrong. She thinks she did something wrong. She fears and she trembles at the idea of the crowd seeing that she had touched Jesus Christ. She fears and trembles at the thought of Jesus knowing what she had done. She does not bear a clean conscience. If she was convinced that her actions wouldn't have offended Jesus, then why was she so slow to admit what she had done? But we're told she reached out and grabbed the hem of his garment, and immediately the flow of blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had proceeded from him, had, had, the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? His disciples said, You see the crowds pressing in on you, and yet you say, Who touched me? He looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling and aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Her reaching out is audacious faith. 
We see audacity here again, this time towards her own fears as she is not willing to slip back in that crowd, but says, no, I will go forward and I will fall, not behind him and where she had grabbed him from, but I will fall before him. She comes forward and she owns her actions when she tells Jesus the whole truth. The Bible makes it clear she didn't cut any corners. She told him the whole truth about her condition and what she had done and why. Think about what the passage says. First, she was already healed. She had already gotten what she wanted. She realized the moment she touched the hem of his garment that the issue was resolved. Did she really need to pay the price now? Did she really need to make a confession to what she had done? Couldn't she just slip away in the crowd? It's so easy to do. You just stop walking and your problem disappears. Second, Jesus' disciples were giving this woman an out. Of course Jesus was being pressed up again on all sides by lots of people. I don't have to admit what I've done. Eh, maybe he was thinking about somebody else. Maybe he healed two people at the same time. You can think of the justifications in your mind that you might make for this. You know, I once was at a, a rock concert, and uh, my days of being anywhere near the mosh pit have expired. But I was at this show, and there was this, and I'm not, a, I'm not a masher. I just like being close to the stage. I'm a nerd. I like seeing the gear that they use. That places me squarely in the middle of the mosh pit around all these thrashers who were stomping around. Oh, man. Did I say I've expired? That, that, yeah, that's no longer something I enjoy. But, but there was this really obnoxious fellow right next to me, and he was just slam dancing all over the place, you know? And I don't know what this guy's deal was. He probably had had too many drinks. I remember he kept getting mad at me saying I pushed him. I'm standing there, stone still, just trying to enjoy the show, and he's bumping into everyone. There's, you know, the whole thing. It feels like you're in the hull of a boat. You know, the floor's quaking beneath you. You know, everybody's kind of going back and forth. And this guy, like three or four times, almost gets up in my face, mad that he thinks I'm touching him. I wasn't touching him. Everyone else was touching, and we were all touching each other, you know? Like, how on earth can he accuse me? This is the situation this woman was in. Everyone's touching each other, right? Yeah, I, probably, I touched him, but so did 20 other people in the last 10 seconds. But she owns it, and she tells him the whole truth. She audaciously, boldly, confidently confronts her fear. And if you have ever been tempted to tell a lie, you recognize that it takes boldness to confront yourself. When you tell a lie, and then there's an open pathway for you to get away with the lie, it takes even more boldness for you to insert yourself and say, no, I did do this, and tell the whole truth. This is her audacity. She's bold. I want to make one other point based on us talking about her being audacious, and that is she is not braggadocious. She is not brazen this, in what she did. She is meek and fearful as she comes to Jesus. But the point is that even in her meekness, she was audacious in overcoming herself. And there is an inner struggle to not admit or to confess what she's done. There were external excuses, like we've already said. But she comes 
and she displays herself to Christ, and she tells him the whole truth. And this is, this is what I want to say. Uh, there is a distinction um, between Christian faith and being cocky and self-confident. There is boldness in her touching Jesus and in her willingness to share the whole truth with him. But her willingness to take bold risks is rooted in what she believes that he would do for her. Do you recognize that? She spent every penny she had trying to fix her own problems, and it hasn't gotten her anywhere but further back. She's not coming to Jesus because she thinks she's now got some, you know, great idea and that in her power she's going to fix herself. Her audacity, her boldness, her confidence is rooted in God and what he can do for her. And as a Christian, don't make the mistake of thinking that pride and arrogance is righteous, um, is righteous audacity for, for God. Audacity of faith is not rooted in our own greatness or power or ability, but in Jesus's. So faith in, in God's power is what motivates not just this woman, but actually, as I was thinking about it, all men and women of faith down through the ages. You think about people in the Bible you may have read of before. In the Old Testament, you have those great godly midwives who saved all the babies of Israel when, when Pharaoh had said, you know, there's way too many Israelites. You need to start, you know, all the boys, you need to start killing these boys as they are delivered because we just, we can't have this ratio of Israelites to Egyptians. You've got to start killing them. They said no. They said no. And they didn't. You have the young man David, King David. But before he was king, he was offended by the giant's taunts and he went out to fight him and he didn't go out to you know he didn't go out to fight him thinking he was some great warrior some experienced soldier who could take down such a threat he was a little boy a young man but he believed in the power of a great god right who are you to speak and defy the armies of the living god he doesn't say who are you to make fun of me it's about god and about god's power you think of Micaiah, he's a lesser-known guy. He's a prophet who's willing to speak the truth to power to the wicked king Ahab. Not because he was great, but because God's word was true and God was great. But what about you? Have you ever had the audacity to reach out and grab the hem of Jesus' robe? Though this is the story of a real woman who has a real physical problem, the greater truth of this story is that she represents us, as I said at the beginning. She has a problem that makes her dirty and unclean and that keeps her from coming into the presence of God. She's done everything she could in her own power to fix the problem, and it hasn't worked. She has not been able to cure herself. She can do some things to mitigate the effect of the bleeding for a moment, but there is nothing she can do to fix the internal problem. Her life is slipping away from her. And we are this woman. Will you do as she did and reach out to grab hold of Christ? Or will you press up against him as one of the crowd? There are many who come near to Jesus, many who may even come to church and who know about God, but who never, ever grab hold of him in faith as this woman did. Remember that Jesus said, many are called, many hear about him, but few are chosen. When Jesus asks who touched him, the disciples say, the crowd, Lord, you, you see, there's like tons of people all around us. 
and you're, you're wondering who touched you? Many walked with him that day, but only one needed him. Many brushed up against him, but only one reached out to him in faith. Will you be that person? Do you have the audacity to take your uncleanness and your sins and to go to Christ for help and to reach out with your polluted hand and grasp him in faith? I pray that this would be true for some of us this morning. During the week, as I think about this passage and I think about our time together this morning, I'm praying that God would be working to revive the hearts and minds and souls of those that may have walked with Jesus for a long time but never actually grabbed hold of him. So I pray that this would be true for some of you this morning. Only those who have the audacity to act in such a way will be saved. Only those who trust in Jesus' power and love and mercy will be healed of their afflictions and sorrows and griefs. First Peter says that he himself bore our sins on his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you are healed. Have you been healed? Has the flow of your blood been stopped by the flow of Jesus' blood? That's one of the incredible realities that this story declares. Have you had the audacity to reach out to him as this woman did? This is where audacious faith begins and extraordinary salvation begins. But remember, just like with the midwives, with David, with Micaiah, people I already mentioned, audacity doesn't just stop when we reach out and grab the hem of Jesus' garment. David, for example, wasn't just audacious when it came to slaying the giant. He was also audacious when it came to creeping down and cutting off the hem of Saul's robe but not slaying him. He was bold to even go that close to, to Saul, but he was also sort of audacious in the, in the other direction because all his soldiers said, why didn't you kill him? What are you doing? Like, you're crazy. He was also audacious when he ate the showbread, the, the bread that was in the temple, and he was traveling through and needed to be fed, and he took it and ate. He was audacious when he said, I'm going to build the Lord a temple. And God said, I have never asked for a temple. I've been content in a tent. He was audacious when he danced before the ark. The same could be true for all of us. Think about the disciples that are even with Jesus right now in the street. Some of them were called from being fishermen. They, Jesus had walked to the, up to them one day and said, hey, come follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And guess what? They did it. They dropped everything they were doing, they, and they became nomadic, sort of traveling around. They, their whole lives changed in that day. And yet, that wasn't the only time they needed to be audacious. What I'm saying here is our, our audacious faith continues. There's going to come a time where, where Jesus, after he is ascended into heaven, um, is no longer with them, and they're going to be preaching about Jesus, and the Sadducees are going to come up and, and say, you can't preach about Jesus, and they're going to have Peter and the other apostles thrown in prison. And then the Holy Spirit, an angel, is going to release them in the middle of the night, and guess what the angel is going to tell them to do? Something really audacious and kind of stupid if you're like looking at it from the world's perspective. He says, go back into the temple. Hey, where do you think that the religious leaders who put them in jail hung out? Probably near the temple, right? Go back to the temple and preach the gospel again. Audaciousness in our walk. It, it's, you know, I think that some of us think that 
coming to God is taking a leap of faith. And we confuse a leap of faith for a life of faith. It's not just a one leap, it's a life of faith. We cannot approach God like, you know, coming into him is just jumping over a chasm or a river. We have to recognize, like, like the story of Pilgrim's Progress, it's, it's a journey. It's through mountains and valleys and forests, and it, we have to be audacious every step of the way. All right, we need to wrap up. In the end, we see the glorious reward of faith. Jesus said to the woman, Mind you, she's already been healed. She felt in her body that the flow had dried up. But Jesus says to her in verse 34, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Okay, the reward of faith, here it is. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. This is Jesus' response to the woman, and this is his response to every single one of you if you're willing to grab hold of him by faith. He acknowledges her faith, and then he says, Go in peace. Go in peace. She's received more than physical healing, hasn't she? After all, what good does physical healing do if we don't have peace with God? Remember that she wasn't even allowed to go into the temple and to be in God's presence. But she's audaciously passed through the courtyard and made her way right into the temple, so to speak, by touching Christ. And instead of receiving anger, rejection, scorn... She receives peace from God. This is the real miracle. A change of earthly circumstances isn't nearly good enough for you. This life is but a vapor, a puff of smoke. A change in our earthly circumstances without change in our relationship with Christ, without being at peace with God, is more worthless than somebody who decides to take all of his money and spend it on like the most glamorous, VRBO vacation for one night and then after that night moves back to living in the slums for the rest of his life. That's how worthless just getting some temporary healing on earth is without peace with God. The glory of the story is that Jesus extends his peace to her in return for her extending her uncleanness. And isn't it strange that he says be healed of your affliction. That's the last thing he says to her. Be healed of your affliction. After she was already healed, she had already been healed. Why say that? Because she needed, and he needed, uh, she needed rather, and we need his word. It's a wonderful kindness that he not only heals her, but that he gives his word to her that it is so. His word that created the world, that causes nations to rise and fall, his word that causes her flow to stop. He gives it to her. By his word, he offers you healing, peace, and salvation, and he calls out to you and says that he's willing to take your uncleanness if you're willing to reach out to him. So are you willing to be audacious and grab hold of him? Are you willing? That's the question. Let's pray.